The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to read John 16, starting at 16, but I'm going to read two verses less than the bulletin indicates. I, after dealing with the text, I decided verses 23 and 24 will come with the next part, not this part. So listen to God's Word. Jesus is speaking to the 11 disciples as He's been saying farewell to them in different ways, and He's just spoken about the Holy Spirit as the comforter and helper who will come to them. He says this, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to a little while, and you will not see me, and then again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, you will see me? Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. This is Christ's promise, and it is God's own holy word. Last week, several days, you may be aware, Major League Baseball teams were meeting to try to decide the positions of who would eventually come to the World Series. I'm old enough to remember when the World Series were over by about September 20th. Now we're lucky if they start before early to mid-November. But uh, we're deciding these divisional series championships, and last week we had three games with six teams involved because each of those six teams had a two-and-two record, and it was a five-game series, so winner-take-all, three games, one team advances from each. I only saw the end of one game, and the scene was just as expected— but so that I could predict, having seen these things a few times before, what the TV cameras saw in all of those games. In the case of the Blue Jays, the Royals, and the Mets, I saw grown men 
ages 20 to 40 approximately, jumping up and down like eight-year-old boys, shouting, gesturing, laughing, and falling on top of each other on the pitcher's mound. Almost ridiculous behavior, but they were so delighted. They were so happy. But I also saw in that game, and I'm sure the others filmed the same, the cameras swinging around to film the players in the losing dugout. Most of those players were sitting down or standing immobile. A few headed for the tunnel for the locker room, but many of them stayed, and you can picture them. They were more or less frozen in position, not moving around. No one was smiling. Every face was stony as they looked in disbelief and probably some disgust at the idea that their playoff dreams were done with, their season was over. Here and there a bat got kicked or a wall got punched. Depths of sorrow and heights of delight are experienced in real-life scenes just as in baseball. In fact, much more often than in baseball. Within minutes, we know we can be in a situation where we feel exalted or delirious with happiness, or we can hear some news that plunges us into a real situation of sadness, sorrow, tears, great dismay. A few of you in this congregation know of a situation I heard about last Sunday. A 59-year-old preacher, I knew him somewhat years ago. I actually participated in the committee that examined him for ordination, I think, about more than 30 years ago. He was in his 20s. I heard that this man, who had had a lot of difficulty in his recent years of ministry, a lot of struggle and anxiety and sadness, left a church under circumstances he didn't want to leave, nothing he had done wrong, but things just went badly for him. He was preaching last Sunday, 59 years old. He preached the morning sermon and had a heart attack and died. So from a little while of struggle and difficulty in his life, he went to the tremendous joy of heaven with Christ. But think of his wife and family who were plunged into great sadness, which it would surely take them a long time to recover from. Well, speaking to the 11 disciples, Jesus here in John 16, 16, spoke to his friend's practical need. Again, it's all about these several chapters. He is going away, and he has alluded to that in different terms, and they've had questions and shown their confusion, and he's given them some truths to hang on to, but they're still dismayed. They're still sorrowful. And Jesus is speaking to that sadness and sorrow here as he tells them, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me. Now, we probably feel from our vantage point in history that we understand that pretty clearly, what he was saying, and, and we think they ought to have been comforted. But you have to understand that they had no concept. Uh, they were barely grasping the concept that he was going to die, and they did not have the concept of a resurrection from the dead. So to, to them, this was a riddle. And they looked at each other, what in the world does he mean? And then he says in verse 20, what's recorded there, 
you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Well, again, what does he mean? It did help them later on, and they could put it in a framework, in a context later on. But in the moment they heard it, it was nothing but a puzzle. And they had to walk by faith through whatever that little while was going to mean before they would discover the fullness of joy. And isn't that where we live very often in our lives? In some kind of an interval, a little while, might be hours, might be weeks, might be years, where something's wrong, something's sad, something really causes us dismay. And we say, I don't feel any delight in being a Christian in this period of time. I'm struggling with it. Why is God letting this happen? But the lives of believers, you see, are not promised to be troubled-free. We, we ought to know that by now. We do have a joy, a deep undercurrent of strong joy, but we can lose sight of it in the midst of suffering and difficulty. So as we try to wrestle with this phrase a little while here in John 16, I'm asking the overall question of how will we endure in a Christ-anchored hope during the little whiles when we're out of touch with joy? I have two main points. The first one will sound strange as I word it, but I'll unpack it for you. First, I want to ask that we consider sorrow turning to joy in three historic scenarios. Sorrow turning to joy in three historic scenarios. That sounds strange. You'll understand in a minute. There's a difficulty of Bible interpretation about this passage I had basically forgotten about until I dug into it again this past week. There's a question among all the commentators, and and not just, you know, among liberal commentators versus conservative, but among the conservatives, among those who highly respect God's Word. There's some disagreement. And it does center on this question stated in verse 18. What does he mean by a little while? Now, the phrase could mean at least three different things. It could mean, and probably most obvious to you that it does mean, the time, the portion of three days when the body of Jesus was in the tomb, removed from anyone's view. He had died. Everybody was sad and struggling with what had happened. But of course, that little while was really a little while, and it completely changed when the joy of resurrection morning came along. That's probably the most obvious thing that most of you would say it means. But many have suggested another alternative. A little while could also mean the time after Jesus had been resurrected. You remember, he walked with the disciples for 40 days. He gave them instructions. He encouraged them in many things. And then came that climactic day when he was ascended into heaven. So he was gone again. After a little while, I'm going away. But he said, you'll see me again. And it suggested, well, they did see him again in the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We've spent a lot of time in the last weeks as Jesus assuring his disciples, I'm going away, but not completely. I will be with you because the Holy Spirit will bring my presence to you. We've seen that in many ways here in the end of chapter 14, the beginning of chapter 15. I'm the vine 
and you are the branches. Then again, chapter 16, the helper will come. And in many ways, Jesus said basically that the Spirit would glorify me and take what is mine and declare it to you. We just saw that last week. Jesus really, in a very solid sense, would be there when the Spirit was there. Well, you say, I'm not sure how they get that out of this passage. Well, maybe then you won't get the third idea that some people propose. And that is that a little while goes beyond the lives of these 11 disciples who would become apostles and includes us. Because he might have been speaking about the little while of the whole age of the church in which Jesus would be physically absent from the earth, but that then after that little while, in quotes, he would return in his glorious second coming. And there are very reputable scholars that think that is alluded to. You say, well, how am I supposed to choose this? Do you have the answer, Pastor? I would say to you, my, this is like the quiz you took in school, you know, is it... Uh, a or B or C or all of the above. This is all of the above in my view. I think there's sufficient ambiguity in what Jesus is saying here, deliberate ambiguity when he said a little while, that it can apply not only to the most obvious thing, the time between death and resurrection, but to all these different possibilities when we sense the absence of the Savior, but we have the promise that he will return, and when he returns, we'll have his joy. Let me look at that first possibility for a minute, one that I don't think anyone will argue that fits the promise of Jesus here. A little while, you'll see me no longer, and again in a little while, you will see me. Of course this fits the event of his death and his resurrection, and probably is the most obvious thing that's here, no question. Think of the desolating sadness and even great fear that these men were going to face the very next day from when this was being told to them. They fled from the cross. Most of them fled from the garden just a couple hours from this. After the time of prayer in the garden, you remember the arrest came, most of them ran away. Then they sort of filtered back and tried to watch events that were happening. John actually went even into the courtyard of the high priest's house where Jesus had one of those mock trials and he watched him being abused and lied about there. It's obvious that this is part of what Jesus is predicting. I'll go away from you, but then I'll come back. But they didn't get it. You see, we say, why wouldn't they get that? Why wouldn't they understand that? Well, the concept of resurrection was meaningless to them. Yes, he had alluded to it before and said things about it, but if you've never had a resurrection in your life and nobody you ever knew had a resurrection, you aren't sitting there waiting for the resurrection to happen. And it was only after the fact that this made any sense to them. Notice, too, that Jesus says that while they're sad and they're completely bereft by his departure, other people are going to be absolutely delighted. The world is delighted, he said here. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice in verse 20. You go back to my baseball illustration, if I may. Think of the fact that your team has lost, your season is over, you can do absolutely nothing to change that fact. You're 
completely downcast about it. But to add insult to injury, here's another team dancing around on your baseball grave gleefully celebrating, and you have to watch it. That's, in a sense, what the disciples had to go through. Not only was Jesus departing, but he was departing in the worst manner possible with abuse heaped up on him and spitting and blows and nails driven into him. And they had to watch it or be aware of it. A dead Christ was certainly the church's despair. But then came the great happiness of a risen Christ, the church's triumph. That had to be the most ecstatic reunion of all time on Easter morning. If you read in Luke 24, it says there, as they saw the risen Lord, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with what? Great joy. The very ending of Mark, Mark 16, 8, tells of the women who who saw his risen body but didn't understand, and it says they ran away in fear and joy, fear and joy together. That's a right combination for such an event, I would think. Well, certainly the time, the little while between cross and resurrection does fit the right interpretation of what Jesus was predicting here. But there's just one little wrinkle about it that you have to think about, and that is that he had said that a joy was going to be given them that no one could take away or that it wouldn't end, verse 22. Well, you could argue resurrection joy continued even though the body of Jesus wasn't seen after the ascension. But the fact is, Easter morning joy was not permanent in the way that you might think it would be. So think about a second scenario here that is suggested. And I wouldn't suggest these things to you if if very credible authorities did not bring them up before me. The, uh, the names of various commentators who look at this second one are, are people to be paid attention to. And they say, think about the little while from his ascension when his glorified body was gone from them and they were asked to go to Jerusalem and wait for him. And they were in prayer together in the upper room, it says, and going into the book of Acts, it tells of that tremendous day called the day of Pentecost. When the house was shaken Think of the force. You know, we have ex- had experience with some tornadoes and tail ends of hurricanes and things around here enough to know that when the wind gets up there high enough, you don't want your house in the way of it. And the book of Acts says the house was shaken. And the power of God came in the Holy Spirit upon these disciples as the presence of Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was conveyed by the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit brought the life of Jesus to indwell their lives. And 1 Peter 1.8 calls what happened there an experience of joy inexpressible. Joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And this we can take to be part of what Jesus was doing when he was fulfilling his promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you. You won't see my body, but I will be in you. But there's a third way to look at this, another scenario. Solid Bible interpreters like Augustine speak of this one. And if Augustine says something, he's a man, he's imperfect, 
but he's one of the greatest Bible interpreters of all time. And Augustine saw the I'll be with you a little while, then gone, then back, as speaking about the age that we live in right now. The little while of 21 centuries, at least, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, until he returns. And you know, interestingly, there's a place or two in the Scripture, Hebrews 10.37 would be one, that uses this very language for the return of Christ. Hebrews 10.37 says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. We say, well, wait a minute, it's been an awfully long while to call it a little while. You know how Christians can get sort of cynical even about the, what should be a precious doctrine, the return of Christ. We could say, well, yeah, but we've been waiting an awfully long time, and I don't expect to see it in my lifetime. Well, didn't Jesus tell us it would be a day and an hour that we didn't expect when we weren't looking? If you think it's going to be a day and an hour when the whole world has got the date identified and is standing on the front lawn watching for it, you are wrong. Christ is going to come in glory, and every eye is going to see him. That is the promise of God. And the Scripture says that believers will greet that day when they wake up to what it is with boundless joy. Even as some of the same neighbors and friends of ours will be greeting that event with terror as they realize this is the end and I missed the opportunity to put trust in him. Matthew twenty-five twenty-three tells us on that day when Christ comes, he'll have this to say to those who have lived quietly, faithful, persevering lives of believing in him and bowing to his word. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You've known some joy in me before, but now the fullness, now you see me. Now you will dwell with me forever with nothing standing in between. Well, you may not agree with me. I may not have convinced you, but I'm, I am convinced of this idea that we need not necessarily choose that only one of those scenarios applies to our text. I think Jesus was speaking about all the little whiles of our life with a promise here that is not tied down to just one of them, and it applies to disciples today who are still removed from Christ's physical presence, but look for him, wait for him, hope in him. So I want to tell you, secondly, this one more point today, that there's a principle established in this text, and the principle is that sorrow, all kinds of sorrow, constantly gives birth to Christian hope. Look at verse 21. Jesus gives us a wonderful illustration of what he's talking about, a vivid one. We can easily understand it. John 16, 21, he said, When a woman gives birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But after the birth, she no longer remembers her anguish for her joy that a human being is born into the world. Husbands, I don't think there's any time, if you're at all like me, that you respect your wife more than if you see her giving birth. Number one, you think, thank you, Lord, that I was not a woman. But that's said not to laugh at them, 
to respect them. It is unimaginable what it costs a mother to bring a life into this world. I've witnessed it, well, three occasions for four children. And one of them was a very hot night in July 1978 when my wife gave birth to twin sons. And those twin sons, ladies, weighed six and a half pounds each. Thirteen pounds of baby was born to a relatively small woman. And it cost my wife a lot of agony to give birth to our twins. But I can tell you, I, you know, she's getting in sermon illustrations two weeks in a row. I better, just occurred to me, I better watch it. But I have never heard Carol, ever, even allude to the idea of what a terrible nightmare of pain and anguish that was. I'm so sorry I went through that. I don't ever want to do anything like that again. No. Never have I even thought that she was thinking that. She has never referred to giving birth to children as anything but a tremendous joy and blessing from God. Well, Jesus is using that experience as a principle here, and he's saying, don't you think this is exactly what it will be like for you in your Christian life, not just a couple days or or hours between the cross and resurrection, but many times that might be called a little while. I'm paraphrasing the Scripture now, but I'm thinking Jesus is saying this, if I might paraphrase. I'm going to be taken from you for a while. In fact, I'm going to be out of your sight for various times in your lives to come when things are hard and we seem to have been pulled apart and you can hardly remember the good experience of seeing my face and my smile and hearing my words. But know this, that even though you have to experience that separation and the world is laughing at you and trampling on my grave, so to speak, these experiences are God's raw material from which he is manufacturing a splendid joy at the end of things. At the end of that little while, whether it's days or months or centuries. So, Christian, walk in hope. I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and nobody will be able to take this joy from you. He's talking about all our sadness and sorrow and confusion being transformed in the end of things. Now, you see, he's not just saying, now stay with me on this, he's not just saying the bad thing's going to happen, i.e. the cross, and then a great thing's going to happen, the resurrection, and that will push the bad thing out of the way because that's not what was going on in the, in the Bible. I don't think any of us would witness to a a non-Christian and say, I'd like to tell you about how great Jesus is, but I hope you'll just ignore the whole ugly chapter about how he died as a tortured criminal. Just forget about that. Set that aside and pay attention to the resurrection. Would you say that? Your witness would be terribly unfaithful if you did. No, we have to say what Paul said in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory in anything other than what? The cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord. It was the terrible experience, the wrenching separation, the awesome 
thing of watching him being abused and dying in weakness and naked on that cross and people just mocking him as he died. Paul says, I glory in that. What's the matter with Paul that he glories in that? And he also says in 1 Corinthians 1, I will preach nothing as my great theme to you, but Jesus Christ and him resurrected? No, crucified. That's the theme of my preaching, Christ crucified. John wrote in uh, Revelation 5, the great vision God gave him of a scene in heaven, and he, was, he heard the song going up to Christ there saying, Worthy are you, Lord, again, because you were not resurrected, slain, glorying in the cross. This is what Jesus is saying when he says your sorrow, the sorrow itself will turn into joy. The sorrow, the, the source of your terrible pain, whether it's going through cancer, whether it's that first year or two of a bitter, bleak experience of losing a spouse, whether it's a, an adult child turning their back on you in anger, whatever it is, whatever that little while experience is, it's the very sorrow of that experience that God is going to transmute or transform just as Jesus changed water into wine. He's going to change the sorrow into joy. I, I used to puzzle over 2 Corinthians 4.17, but I think I'm beginning to see what it means, at least. Where Paul wrote there, our light momentary affliction, the affliction itself is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Don't miss that principle. The very thing that seems like a tragedy, that seems like meaningless pain, is changed by the gracious hand of God into the base material of an indescribable, everlasting joy. I can illustrate it with a very down-to-earth illustration. Just about all of us, if you own a home or even if you're a renter, participate in recycling today, right? You've got a plastic tub somewhere that you're supposed to throw the, you know, the plastic Coke bottles and the milk jugs and the aluminum cans and whatever else, uh, glass bottles and so on into the container and someone takes this waste product that you're not interested in, you have no use for it, it's completely superfluous to your life, you put it at the curb, somebody takes it and out there in a great big warehouse somewhere they make it into something else. Even old tires and old motor oil. Recycled, right? I believe our text is telling us that Christian hope is constantly being recycled out of the trash heap of the sharp sorrows of God's people. And God himself is the recycler. All disciples of Jesus will endure dark times, hard times. Your job will hit the skids. You may miscarry having a child that you expected to have. Various things. You, you just tell me what you're struggling with. You just tell me what a little while looks like in your life. A disease you have to face. Maybe a fatal disease. Or a disease with a very negative prognosis. In all the ups and downs and changes and pain and chaos and questions of a stormy life, we can hope in something. 
we can hope in the joy of knowing Christ and trusting Christ, trusting that that joy will reappear eventually in our life, even if it's out of sight right now. It will reappear because he promised it to us, and he died for it to belong to us. Some years ago, we ministered to a wife of a former pastor. The man had been unfaithful to his wife and had abandoned her, and we had opportunity, my wife and I, to know this lady and become her friend and be, try to be a comfort and a guide to her. And there came a point in our experience where I asked an artist in our church, as another church, uh, to paint something on a wooden plaque that we could give this woman as a gift because she needed this. It's Isaiah 61.3. We gave her this verse inscribed on a plaque. He, the Lord, gives beauty in place of ashes, the oil of gladness in place of mourning. He gives the garment of praise in place of a faint spirit, that they may be oaks, no stronger tree than that, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. God always brings back the joy to his people after they go through the little while periods of suffering and questioning and anguish and loneliness. Based on the promise of Jesus, I bid you, if you're in the middle of one of those little while times, I bid you to look in hope for a surprising change that awaits you somewhere in days ahead. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what David wrote about in the 30th Psalm. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. For those who hope in him, his joy always gets the last word. Thanks be to God. Our Father, I thank you for a Savior whose heart was so compassionate that even as he knew in his omniscience that an arrest party of cruel men were on their way to that garden where he was speaking, even as he knew every horrible thing that he was going to face within 24 hours, even as he knew exactly what the hearts of his friends would be like and how dismayed and disturbed and angry and lost they would be that next day forward, he was giving them a promise that they later could understand. Thank you for the promise that a little while you will see me no more, but then again, in a little while, you will see me. We look to see you, Lord Jesus, at the end of the age, and we will rejoice, and we will praise your name, and no one will take our joy away ever again. Thank you for this. Amen.